Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curd, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curd. We're doing a special programme tonight, Fixing the Nation, so we are, every single Friday for the next few weeks. Rather than just pontificating about the news, we're going to get into the matters that really are affecting you. We're going to dedicate our whole hour to one topic per night, have a panel of experts to really get into it. And the topic that we're picking on tonight is the cost of living crisis. I know that this is something now that affects pretty much everybody, uh, except perhaps if you're Rishi Sunak. But I know I listen to you guys every single day. You get in touch with me. You tell me about what's going on in your lives. And I know that a lot of you are struggling. So we thought we'd get into this topic tonight. Uh, Keeping me company is my panel, Andrew Lilliker, who's the Exec Director and Principal of Europe Economics, and Fran Boyd, who's the Executive Director at Positive Money. And they're campaigning for what they describe as a fair, sustainable and democratic economy. And the worrying news is that many experts are predicting uh, that this is going to get worse. And as we know, we're battling now for a new prime minister. Who is that going to be? They've both got very different ideas as to what the future should look like and what they should be doing to help fix this cost of uh, living crisis. My experts have got their own opinions as well on what we should be doing. As I said, let me know your thoughts and where you are right now. But first, should we just remind ourselves of the situation as it stands? Prices for essential goods such as fuel and food are rising faster than household income, leading to a fall in real income. The causes of the current crisis are varied. The COVID-19 pandemic weakened the economy with the shutdown of many businesses. However, before the pandemic, in the last 15 years, the UK also saw the weakest growth in gross domestic product, or GDP, per head of population. It was the same with wages. Take-home pay had been stagnating even before the pandemic. The war in Ukraine has led to rises in energy costs, already high as the pandemic recovery led to a surge in demand. Inflation is at a 40-year high at 9.4%, driven by the increase in the supply of money, low interest rates and the rise in consumer demand. Rising food costs are being driven by a labour shortage, and higher raw materials, such as the increasing cost of fertiliser. The cost of living crisis means 1.3 million people in the UK are expected to fall into poverty this year. The way of measuring poverty is fluid, but currently, for a family with two children, earning anything under £20,000 will put them in poverty. In response to the cost of living crisis, the government has created a support package worth £37 billion. This includes payments for people on income support and one-off fuel payments. In the short term, measures to fix the cost of living crisis could include cutting tax, either directly or indirectly, securing the energy supply and ditching net zero green taxes or levies. Some long-term solutions suggest more radical actions, such as a move towards renationalisation of basic services like rail, a universal basic income, a return to coal or even privatising the NHS.
Right, well, Lega, let me know your thoughts on that. But, Andrew, let me pick up with you first, if I may. Uh, from your perspective, what do you think has led us to the situation that we're in today? Well, inflate, I mean, cost of living crisis, we call it. Fundamentally, what we're talking about is inflation being high. So prices are going up rapidly. And the basic reason why prices are going up rapidly is because the Bank of England has been has had too loose a monetary policy. So interest rates have been too low and they printed uh, too much money. Now, some of that's understandable because some of that comes off the back of the COVID crisis where uh, the situation was very dire for the economy. Um, but we borrowed a lot. I mean, GDP went down nearly 25% in one year. Uh, so the government borrowed an awful lot. Uh, it um, helped out with various sorts of spending and the Bank of England loosened policy. So it was always likely that there was going to be some kind of um, uh, events as a consequence of recovering from the COVID crisis. There were those who pointed out uh, last year that the Bank of England had probably gone too far and that um, the economy was that we were likely to get quite high inflation. And Boris Johnson and uh, Rishi Sunak back last year and through the back end of last year um, kind of rather ignored those warnings. And once as inflation started going up, they sort of suggested it was really nothing to do with them. Uh, anybody's fault. It was you might remember Boris Johnson talking about various kind of rapacious capitalists with supermarkets not passing on prices or, or it was all Putin's fault with the energy prices going up. And it is absolutely true that that's one fact, that that's an additional factor which has exacerbated things. There are other additional factors as well. So in China, they continue to have lockdowns as a mm. consequence of COVID and that disrupts various sorts of manufacturing supply chains and so on. Uh, so these are, there are these factors, but fundamentally what you're talking about is that the Bank of England has um, allowed inflation to go uh, rather too high. It's not the only central bank that's done that. Things happened in the US and in, the, in Europe as well. Different central banks took this approach. Uh, but um, the, and this, once you understand, I think that unless you diagnose the problem correctly understand that fundamentally what we're talking about here is interest rates being um, having been too low and money being uh, having been printed too much you're not going to get the right kind of solution yeah and before i bring fran in i just want to uh, give some context uh, to what andrew was saying there so for a very long time uh the bank of england base rate was basically at 0.1 percent it wasn't until December 2021 that the Bank of England actually, what you're calling an intervention, raised uh, the base rate. By this time, inflation was calculated at 5.40%. Now, the target, of course, in this country is 2%. So in December 2021, they raised the base rate to 0.25%. Uh, they then raised the base rate again in February 2022 to 0.5%, by which time inflation was at 6.10%. Uh, uh, they raised it again in March uh, 2022 to 0.75%. Inflation then was at 7%. Uh, and they raised it again in May. And then they raised it again in June to 1.25%, which is the current base rate now, by which point uh, inflation was at 9.40%. So that's just to give some perspective there. So you're saying that that intervention in December 2021, uh, by which time inflation was at 5.4%, uh, you're saying that came way too long, uh, way too late. Sorry, Fran, do you agree with that? I would say... No, I do think that, you know, we need to diagnose the problem. Absolutely agree with that. But I don't agree with Andrew's analysis. And I think you've just exactly highlighted why, which is interest rates as a tool is broken. Um, but before I kind of bring in my perspective, I think it's important to start the cost of living crisis with the fact that, you know, we all want enough to get by wherever you live, whatever you do for a living. And for too long, you know, 
way before December 2021, you know, we're thinking a decade, bills have been going up and up. You know, this isn't new. We've seen a huge increase this year, but this has been going on for a long time. And at the same time, wages haven't budged. And this is part of a system that essentially prioritises corporate profits over the public interest. And I think, you know, the two issues around the inflation we're seeing this year, which isn't talked about enough and actually wasn't covered very well in your in the previous section, and, and it isn't generally, are, is our reliance on fossil fuels. You know, it's global gas prices that are pushing up energy prices. And this isn't going to go away. You know, the longer we rely on gas, the more volatility we're going to have. We need to get our fossil fuels. And the second issue... And replace it with what? Uh, with renew we could have a fully uh, renewable uh, electricity grid in two years in the UK. Um, and I think the second issue that's really important is corporate profits. So you speak to any worker, they will tell you it's not their wages up going up that's driving inflation because they haven't seen a pay rise in years. You know, if we look at corporate profits since the pandemic, we've seen um, 33% increase in profits. So we, we just heard yesterday... Centrica, one of the energy companies, getting, I think, 1.4 billion. We've heard Shell getting, in, in three months, 19.2 billion pounds. That's, what, that's another factor that's driving inflation. And it's really concentrated. So we've seen 20, 25 companies, that's just you know, not that many, account for most, 90% of that increase in profits. So you know, as we get into the kind of bigger discussion around the, long, the kind of bigger system changes, we need to be diagnosing the problem. Fossil fuel reliance and corporate profiteering are two really key areas we need to understand. And actually, Andrew Bailey, the governor of the Bank of England, has said we can't do that much when it, when it is fossil fuel. Like, interest rates don't work, as you highlighted with your numbers. It's a blunt tool. So we need to diagnose the problem properly. Um, and, you know, this is part of a long-term trajectory of people's wages going down and down and down and profits going up and up and up. So corporate greed... Uh, Fran thinks is one of the, uh, if not probably primary, I'm, I'm putting words into your mouth, fuel and uh, profiteering, corporate greed. Fran's blaming it on. Do you agree with that? Well, there's various things I, I disagreed there uh, with. The, it, of course, uh, corporations try to make profits, uh, but our primary tool for disciplining corporate, uh, corporate profit-seeking is competition. So other corporations try to compete as well. And if they charge too much, then other people come in and undercut them. And that keeps the prices down. We have a system that, of competition. Though, I mean, we've seen the Competition and Markets Authority saying we have two concentrated systems, so sectors. So we have monopolies, our energy sector, our banking sector. Our, you know, then we have natural monopolies like rail and water, Absolutely. our supermarkets. And so actually we don't have true competition in any of these sectors. Well, it's, we it's, have monopolies and they need to be broken up. It's absolutely the case that we have some sectors where there's significant market power. And in those sectors where we have significant market power, by and large, what we have is forms of price regulation. So what happens in those sectors... And we see that's the, breaking down at the moment, is the, isn't it? Is that the government, the government intervenes and sets price caps of various sorts for the uh, companies. Now, you can argue over whether the price caps are set at the right kind of a level. Uh, you can also argue that in, in various elements of the way that they're set, um, whether the profits which the firms are allowed uh, are too high or not. In fact, though, the profitability which has been permitted to these firms has come down a lot in recent years. So they're, they're it's much more aggressive in terms of the uh, profit. Why corporate the seeing 33% increase since the pandemic? I well, mean, that is because of... It's, it's unsurprising if you get... 
what's, what's happened is that there's been quite a, a considerable structural shift in the economy over the period of the pandemic. So some firms are going to have done very well out of that. If you've got your Amazons and things like that, they're going to have done very well. And it's, I mean, we'd much rather that they were in a position to help us out through that difficult time and make some profit as a consequence of that, rather than that they weren't. So some people have done quite well, absolutely. And some people haven't. But I guess getting to that kind of system-wide issue, what we, what we have is a system where, you know, through your rent, through paying your bills, um, going to the supermarket, people are, are, a lot of that money is going straight to corporates. And what are they doing with those profits? You know, nothing, basically. It's just making the wealth, the, the rich, richer to an extent. We're not seeing them put, like, you know, put their money back into companies in terms of research and development. We're not seeing them investing in their workforce. We're often seeing them actually firing their workforce and rehiring them on like uh, with worse paying conditions. Um, that's why we're seeing you know more union action. And this you know the system is fundamentally you know not working. And in terms of the price cap, you know we're seeing uh, a potential seventy seven percent increase. So the regulatory system that is supposedly con you know helping these monopolies not get out of control it is completely flawed and it's broken. And that's why, you know, we need to have a discussion around, you know, what are some alternatives here? Because it's clearly not working. Well, the, en the energy price cap was probably a misconceived, the, the retail energy price cap which they have was probably a misconceived measure in the first place. It wasn't very well thought, thought through and that's part of the reason it's been rising quite rapidly. Um, the alternative to that, I mean, there were already last year, many, many energy retailers went bust because the, the cost to them of acquiring the energy was so high relative to the price at which they were permitted to sell it that many of them went broke and there were actually there were all kinds of interventions to help some of them out uh, by the government. Um, but, and if we, didn't raise the, if we didn't raise the cap again this year, then lots more of them would go bust. So I, I don't think that that's really the problem. Um, I, I mean, in terms of what people do with their money, I don't really accept that it's the case that um, when money's come through from corporations, people don't reinvest it. But if uh, wealthy people wealthy people want to spend their money instead of investing it, if they want to consume it, I don't have any problem with that. I don't see why we should object to them. Those sorts of activities are going to boost uh, the economy as well. And if they but just want to save it, that's their it's their money to do with what they like. I A lot of corporate profits go to pension funds, which then pay for, mm -hmm. perhaps many of our viewers, pensions. Uh, that's another, that's one of the major things that happens in our economy. You're absolutely one of my viewers. I've lost your name because my emails are coming in very thick and fast, but exactly the point that someone else has just been making there, which is uh, these pension funds. A lot of people, a lot of my viewers, uh, have retired, are on pensions, and they do get anxious when people talk about uh, cutting profits because people get anxious about their pension investments that are indeed in these companies. What would you say back to that viewer that's concerned about that? I mean, I would say that, there, you know, it's not one or the other. We can have pensions that work, that are that kind of allow us to have a decent quality of life. And at the same time, we can have long-term investments in the things we need that protect the future for future generations. You know, I think that's the starting point. We all want a decent quality of life for ourselves and our families and our grandchildren and our grandchildren's grandchildren. But at the moment, the way that the system is going, and especially with our dependence on fossil fuels and climate change, and with this system of having, you know, essentially most of workers' pay packets going into um, the hands of very few, and, and government intervention not being, um, not, not really helping in kind of rebalancing the system, you know, we go, we're going to a point where actually 
there's not much of a future to look at for future generations. Well, there you go. You've had very different opinions uh, in terms of what uh, the thoughts of the causes are on the cost of living. Andrew uh, says that the Bank of England basically uh, have acted in a way that has massively contributed to this situation. Fran uh, says it's basically corporate greed and the types of energy that we're using. Who do you agree with? Uh, if any of them, you might be sitting at home saying they're both talking nonsense. No offence, you two. Mm -hmm. You might have your own views on what's caused this situation. Get in touch with me. Let me know. GBviews at gbnews.uk is the email address. Hello there. Welcome back to Jubes & Co with me, Michelle Jubria. Friday special for the next few weeks, fixing the nation. That's what we're going to do, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to tackle the big issues that are affecting your life. Uh, we're hopefully going to come up with some solutions for them uh, with a panel of experts and, of course, your thoughts as always. So keeping me company tonight until 7 o'clock tonight, we've got Andrew Lilliker, who's the Exec Director and Principal of Europe Economics, and Fran Boyd, who's the Exec uh, Director at Positive Money. Uh, they're campaigning for what they describe as a fair, sustainable and democratic economy. Lots of people was just agreeing with you uh, there, Fran, in terms of what's caused this situation. Amongst uh, other things, Fran was saying corporate greed, uh, she thinks, is responsible. Again, Andrew, lots of people agreeing with you as well in terms of the Bank of England. Andrew was saying that they were too slow to react when it comes to things like interest rate rises. Uh, keep your thoughts coming in. So it's all well and good, isn't it, pontificating over what's caused the situation. But look, we are where we are now, uh, which is incredibly high rates of inflation, 9% plus. Uh, don't forget, the Bank of England's target is 2%, just to give you some uh, context there. Of course, we all know that the energy bills are going to be going up again in October. I've been asking you guys, where do you stand? Uh, Mark says, we were, we were paying £65 a month for gas and electric. Uh, then my company went bust. We were transferred to a different provider and we're now paying £132 a month. See, I mean, £65, I'm not quick enough to calculate the percentage, but that is an incredible hike. Uh, Derek says, I used to uh, pay £120 per month and now paying £300 a month on direct debit. And I have solar panels on my roofing already. Um, Daniel, I, I was paying £90 a month. Uh, now I'm paying £150 uh, with forecast set to go to £250. Peter says, my electricity has gone from 36 to 64, he says, uh, that I don't think that's bad and I've got it fixed for two years. Andy, uh, I was paying 62 a month. Uh, now I'm paying 121. Nigel was paying 90, now paying uh, £185, uh, he says. But it's all right because I'm just going to drink cheap booze and have fewer holidays to get round it. Uh, there you go. How are you guys getting round it? What are you doing in the here and now to try and make things easier for yourself? Because I've got to say, looking at some of those figures, there are immense rises there. And, you know, some people are on fixed incomes. I don't know, maybe you've got a fixed pension uh, or whatever. People might be on uh, a low income. And for many, it is very challenging. Um, Fran, I'll start with you in terms of I want to explore longer term in the next part, but for now, in the here and now, what can people do? And crucially, what can government do? Yeah, well, as you said, you know, we're all feeling the bite, but it's the people on the sharp end, those on the lowest incomes, that this is going to get hit the hardest. Obviously, as we go into the winter and the energy price cap is set to rise again, then this is going to push more people that are in poverty into deep poverty. And we're looking at, I think, one in five already 
are having to cut back on food to pay the pills, which is pretty, you know, hard to hear in one of the wealthiest countries, you know, in the world. So, you know, there are some really simple things. Um, now, I think it's a scandal that we're in this situation. And one of the biggest scandals is that universal credit hasn't been uplifted. Um, we could have just reintroduced the uplift that was there during the pandemic. Also, uplift it in line with inflation. Uh, we need to stop the energy price rising. So you would uplift universal credit to inflationary levels? So you'd give it, what, a nine, let's say, a nine point, what is it now, 9.4, 9.6%, you'd rise it by that much? I mean, I think ideally, because we're looking at really, really, really deep poverty, which will, you know, people growing up in those households, children, will be really scarred their whole life if they get into such bad poverty. So it is really important that we try and protect families now. But there are some other things the government could do. They could, they, we don't have to have this, um, the energy price cap rise in October to, that's projected at 77%, which would mean people looking at uh, um, annual bills of around £3,500. You know, this is pushing not just uh, the kind of 1.5 million people in poverty we heard earlier, but pushing maybe up to 10 million people into fuel poverty. They could increase the tax on oil, energy and gas companies. There was a windfall tax announced that could be extended and increased. Um, and, you know, we can start bringing in some of these energy companies into public ownership. You know, there, there's no reason why we can't start that now. So there's a lot cut that can be done. Um, also reduce the demand for gas by starting to think about retrofitting insulation in people's homes. Um, and, and essentially, you know, getting off fossil fuels so that in the long run, we're not dependent on... Um, on um, international energy companies hiking prices. You know, just to compare the 77%, France, who has a state-owned energy company, EDF, they, households there saw a 4% rise. We're seeing 77%. That's the difference. Wow, 77%. Uh, OK, before I come to you, Andrew, just hold your thoughts, because I'm sure you'll have your own views as well. Uh, Anna, Annabelle Williams joins me now. She's a pers personal finance specialist at Nutmeg, which is an online investment management company. Good evening to you. Um, we're talking, Annabelle, about what people can do uh, to help manage their finances, just to help stretch their money, whatever it is. What tips have you got for people now that might be struggling and worried? Just want to first acknowledge that the cost of living now is so high that for a lot of people, there isn't any more scrimping or saving that they can do. But one thing that we have seen um, become a bit more popular, especially with social media, is budgeting. And it's like a modern take on this old fashioned notion of home economics. It's about people trying to be a bit more kind of mindful with what they spend because a lot of people go around in a bit of a, a brain fog when they're spending. They, You know how much you earn and you generally know what things cost. But when you write it all down, it really takes on a different uh, dimension. And we've seen a big kind of explosion in this. It's like people just trying to make the best out of a difficult situation. But what, I mean... Because people are very afraid, aren't they? You say budgeting as a tool and all the rest of it. Do you think that there's enough support out there for people to, you know, I don't mean to patronise anyone, but to know how to budget, to know how to do things? Yeah, I mean, it's really difficult. Um, I mean, personal finance is a complicated area. There are a myriad of resources. So you can look at things like the Money Advice Service, Citizens Advice Bureau, for example. Um, I mean, there are free resources, 
But I mean, it's also a question of kind of having the time and also not feeling daunted about tackling these things. So one other thing that people can do is look at see and see if they are claiming all of the benefits that they are entitled to. So um, we know that there are around 15 billion of unclaimed means tested benefits. And whilst it can feel like a palaver to kind of put yourself through the whole rigmarole of applying, um, and often the rules are complicated, right now every little helps. Um, a couple of months ago, the Prime Minister said that there were um, 1.3 million people who were entitled to um, childcare support credits and they don't claim them. So that's something that people could look into. Annabelle Williams, uh, thank you very much for your time tonight. Uh, Andrew, let me bring it back to you. Uh, what do you think should be happening in the here and now uh, to help alleviate some of this? So the, the very first thing that the government should be doing is to set an inflation target that's realistic and enforce that with the Bank of England. So we have a bank, a, a, an inflation target at the moment, which is 2%. Nobody actually thinks that the Bank of England, that the government wants the Bank of England to reach 2%. So nobody has any real idea of what they do think it is. I mean, it's not 2%, but is it 8 or 6 or 10? What, what do they want it to be? And part of the problem with them not knowing what, with nobody knowing what, it, what they want it to be, is it then creates a kind of tension between workers and businesses. Because each side then has to try to guess what inflation is going to be so they can then work out what sort of salary rises to, to give to workers. Um, the, each of them are, have some uncertainty. The tendency of the businesses may be to say, well, we don't want to give too much because otherwise the inflation might turn out lower than we expect. Uh, the business, the workers are going to say, well, we don't want to accept too little because otherwise um, it, the inflation might turn out to be higher than we expect. That creates a gap that leads to strikes and other kinds of tension. If you had a much clearer signal as to what, what the government actually wanted inflation to be and was going to enforce against the Bank of England to achieve that, that would help to uh, mitigate that problem. So and what help... level do you think that should be at? Well, it, it, I mean, it depends a little bit on the rest of their strategy. So it, it, another thing which I think is important is... I don't think that they should go ahead with the considerable tax rises, which uh, Richie Sunak has in mind. If they were going to go ahead with those uh, tax rises, then you would probably have a different inflation target from if they were, uh, if, if they weren't going to go ahead with those. So um, he's, he's proposing a very large rise in corporation tax next year. I think that that should be deferred. I think we should probably not do some of the recent tax rises. In, when he originally scheduled these tax rises, inflation was only expected to be more like 4%. Mm. It's because it's so much higher. The consequence of that is that the government is getting an enormous additional uh, tax revenues because you get extra VAT receipts, corporation tax. People get dragged up through the income tax thresholds. So that's giving them something like £60 billion pounds of um, additional uh, net, additional fiscal consolidation. He can probably afford to give half of that 30 billion or so back in the way of temporary tax cuts. So I think that that's the right kind of policy to adopt there. If you had that kind of a combination, the other kinds of things that you should be doing are using, it's a bit of a shame we have this um, leadership, this Tory leadership uh, contest going on at the moment, because we know that come the winter, we're going to have issues potentially of um, <coughs> of rationing already in Germany. There's already talk of that. It's likely to happen in France as well. If we're to avoid those kinds of things happening here, or if not ha the risk of it happening here, at least helping out with our continental uh, friends, we should be using the summer to increase our energy capacity. If energy prices are very high, the natural thing to do is to increase the amount of energy you produce. We should be looking at everything. It should be wind, it should be solar, it should be coal, it should be fracking, it should be gas. Everything that we can do through the next few months to try to increase our energy capacity. Uh, and the last thing that we should be seeking to do, I think, in the short term, is helping the Ukrainians to win. 
because the quicker that we can end that Ukraine war, the quicker that we can move to some kind of normalisation of international circumstances and energy prices coming down. See, I saw uh, Rishi Sunak, I think it was last night actually, uh, talking about the Ukraine war, talking about energy uh, prices. And he was saying higher energy prices are a sacrifice that we have signed up to in order to help uh, Ukraine prosper and succeed. Um, he was calling for what he was calling a buyer's cartel, uh, for people to agree a fee that they will pay for Russian energy that's basically agreed to globally. And I found it very interesting, the responses, when I was looking at this reported in the media and I was looking at the responses back to it, uh, because people were writing in saying, well, hang on a second, I've not signed up to this. I've not signed up to uh, getting involved in the UK, uh, U Ukraine conflicts to the point where it's going to impact my personal finances. Um, so when you, sh you say delve deeper, essentially, into helping the Ukraine conflict, we don't know how long that's going to go on for. We don't. Um, so do you think people should have to absorb uh, increased costs domestically here in order to um, prolong or prosper or whatever word we want to use, international conflict? Yes. I think it's absolutely crucial that we do that. It's absolutely crucial that we face down Russian aggression in this context, uh, because I, I, otherwise, well, quite apart from the oppression of the uh, poor Ukrainians themselves, there would be the risk to other uh, parts of Europe. You'd face risks into Moldova, into Romania, into uh, but isn't into the primary Poland. but isn't the primary responsibility? I'm going off topic a little bit, so I'll try and pull it back in a sec. But isn't the primary responsibility of this government uh, the well-being and duty of care to the citizens here? Absolutely, but, but international security is part of that. Just to guess, bring it back to energy, like what we're talking about is fossil fuel dependence, right? So there's a big issue that a lot of Europe is dependent on uh, Russian gas. And what we need to do right. is get off gas. In the UK, if we treated this in the same way we treated the pandemic, we could do an emergency rollout. All of our electricity could be powered by wind in two years. That would just cost 50 billion. But what happens when the wind don't blow? What's that? What happens when the wind's not there, when it's not now blowing? Now we've got the technology that we can actually ensure that there isn't any break in demand. Like we can, like there are a lot of uh, different ways to make sure that that doesn't happen. Because and we have gas-fired power stations. There's a sense coming through thick and fast for my viewers um, that they completely disagree with you when it comes to energy. So the sense that I've got a lot of emails uh, is one of the things that the viewers feel, uh, or a percentage of the viewers feel, should happen immediately, is the net zero target should be completely abandoned. So you're saying we should go further, faster, deeper into green energy, etc. And a lot of my viewers saying, no, scrap it, that's adding additional costs. And I think that's been because there's been this idea that it should be adding to our bills. That's a completely terrible idea. And, you know, most people that want to see a green transition, that want us to see energy security in the UK, have been saying, like, you know, that isn't the way to go. The way to go is a uh, more state intervention, you know, bringing the energy companies into public ownership, a fast rollout of onshore and offshore wind, ensuring that we uh, have that renewable energy so that we're less reliant on, on gas. We insulate our homes uh, and energy bills come down. And unfortunately, we live in, um, you know, the, the way things are going is that we're going to have continual volatility uh, so we need to, you know, we do need to make this change. And I think that there's really damaging misinformation um, around getting rid of 
uh, net zero when actually we need just to go move faster in order to reduce the energy bills. Well, there you go. What do you think to uh, what you're hearing there? Get in touch with me, gbviews at gbnews.uk is the email. You can tweet me at Michelle Jubes. Uh, let me know all your thoughts on that. Hello there. Welcome back to Jubes & Co. This special tonight, Fixing the Nation. Uh, we are focusing in depth on the cost of living crisis, what's caused it, what should be done about it in the short term, and how can we avoid it all happening again? Uh, keeping me company, my panel of experts, Andrew Lillico, who's the Exec Director and Principal at Europe Economics, and Fran Boyd, who's the Exec Director at Positive Money. Uh, coming up at 7 o'clock tonight, you've got the Friday Night Feast. It'll be presented by Leo Kerst. Leo, what have you got for us? That's a great show tonight. We've got my um, guests in the studio are going to be Darius Davies, the, the comedian, and Vanity Von Glow, uh, the drag queen. And we're going to be covering the Tavistock report that's resulted in the Tavistock gender clinic being shut down. Uh, also, the Rooney Vardy result. Uh, we've also got the Will Smith apologies. Finally, apologise to Chris Rock for slapping him in the face on the Oscars. And uh, there's also a ban on strippers in Edinburgh. So I don't know how, don't know how people are going to get their wallpaper off. Crikey. Okay, sounds very good. I might even stay behind and join you. Uh, not for the stripping, I have to say. Right, uh, that's coming up at seven o'clock. Let's bring it back here then, shall we? Uh, carry on our conversation about the cost of living crisis. Uh, we've been talking about the short-term uh, solutions. Now, I want to look more broadly at the longer-term solutions. How do we stop this happening again? Euron uh, Brook, who's an entrepreneur, writer and activist, joins me now. Uh, good evening to you. What have the government uh, got wrong in all of this? And what do you think should be happening longer term to make sure we don't find ourselves in this situation again? Well, the government has caused all of this. It, it's caused it by uh, spending irresponsibly and taking on huge quantities of debt, thinking that they could just print money and hand it out to people and that nothing bad would happen. Uh, this goes back. I mean, this is very similar to what British governments did in the 1960s and 1970s, and the result was exactly the same. Last time we had a cost of living crisis is, is the last time government just went crazy about spending uh, without thinking about tomorrow. And of course, the Bank of England got it wrong by, again, monetizing the government debt and uh, not seeing the consequence of all that COVID stimulus will go into resulting inflation and not acting much faster and much more aggressively. So what should, you know, in terms of the future then, going forward, what should change to make sure we don't repeat this again? Well, what we need to do is shrink the size of government, shrink uh, the amount of responsibilities government have. What we need is to embolden the private sector to produce and manufacture and, and, and grow the economy, because with growth, uh, wages rise and people people rise out of poverty through economic growth, through having great productive jobs. That is a consequence of private activity. The government is not responsible for that. So if the government could get out of the business of trying to run businesses, if the government could uh, get rid of regulations and, and unleash the, uh, the British entrepreneurs to create and to build and to make, uh, that is the solution. The solution is more capitalism. It's more freedom. Uh, it's, 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 a, it's a bigger and, and more robust private sector, and it significantly shrunken uh, uh, public sector. The public sector is not good at, uh, at running an economy. Central planning does not work. The idea of, uh, of taking over uh, private utilities or private uh, energy producers 
is has been tried in the past. It always leads to disaster. The reason prices are not going up in France is because France is 70 percent uh, electricity produced from nuclear. And if Britain would like its private sector to invest in nuclear power, it should. And the way to do that is to is to reduce the regulations over nuclear power. If the UK wants to reduce uh, prices uh, for uh, for electricity, it can allow private enterprise to start fracking and start producing domestic natural gas. So there are easy ways by liberating the private sector that we can get over this crisis and, and ensure that it doesn't happen again. What we need is more freedom, not less. Fascinating stuff, Jan uh, Vogt. Thank you very much for your time. Something tells me, Fran, you might disagree with uh, an element or two of that. Yeah, that's that's definitely my view. I guess uh, Yaron's view was a bit like the market's going to come and save us all. And I think that that kind of line has been trotted out for quite a few decades now. And it's clearly not the case, you know, as we're seeing right now with the cost of living going up and up and people's wages just not catching up, a lot of people feeling the bite. Um, this is a system that, you know, prioritizes short-term profit maximization uh, over, you know, the public interest, over all of us having a decent quality of life, having enough to get by on, which I think most of us would agree is the kind of country we want to live in. Um, and but I you're a fan of uh, nationalization. Even Labour have abandoned that as a policy. I'm in favor of policies that work in terms of getting people to have a decent standard of living. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, France has a, does have its energy company in the state ownership, has 4% rise versus 77% here. Um, and at the end of the day, the, you know, the kind of um, the numbers, if you look at them, show that a lot of this inflation is driven by our fossil fuel dependence, is driven by corporate profits, and wages have been going down, down, down. And that's why so many of us are struggling to pay the bills and why, and why one in five people are cutting back on the amount of food they're eating. And Would you uh, support a rise in, say, the minimum wage? I think it's about 9.50 at the moment. Should that be right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So what? I mean, ideally, £15. I think £15? Is, I think it's a... <coughs> oh, the TUC. I mean, you know... <laughs> Andrew, £15 minimum wage, is that going to solve things? Uh, I, I would start with the, in a slightly different place here. Uh, to me, I think that the um, our economy has, for probably since the mid-2000s, but particularly exacerbated after the time of the financial crisis, been trapped in a situation in which policymakers were unwilling to take the measures which would see things disrupted in the short term that would mean that the people who already had things lost something uh, at the, which would allow us to get through to the longer term. The kind of thing that I have in mind, let me be more specific, if you had raised interest rates more rapidly in the mid-2000s, house prices would have fallen more rapidly. The, the, the policymakers weren't willing to see that happen because of the political consequences. In the time of the uh, financial crash, if you had allowed or if you had engaged in such a way that banks lost more, um, that uh, people had deposits in banks lost more of their deposits, that would have made people who already had money go further, uh, further down. But the consequence would have been that you would have unleashed uh, you wouldn't have trapped the economy in a system in which you um, were never able to make decisions, which because the whole thing's unstable. 
It's kind of an unnatural situation. We end up, we've ended up with almost zero interest rates for something like 13 years. And uh, that's very unhealthy in an economy. An economy ought to have interest rates. The interest rates ought to be a couple of percent higher than the inflation rate. So if you had um, inflation, if you wanted it to be 2% over time, interest rates ought to be 4 or 5% most of the time. In, in booms, maybe they go to 7%. So the situation with, the, uh, with, uh, with interest rates is very unhealthy. We need to break out of this idea that the, that the policymakers have trapped us in, that we aren't allowed to engage in any any kind of policies that would disrupt things. That's um, politically and economically unhealthy. Uh, I think that there is some effort to, there is some recognition of this. Um, one recognition of this perhaps was forced on policymakers by Brexit. I mean, one of the reasons why people didn't, if you, you probably, some of your viewers may recall some of the famous scenes with uh, the people saying, oh, well, who's going to service our um, coffee? Who are the, where are we going to get our baristas if we change the way the economy works and we don't have so much immigration from the EU? There that is a classic kind of a thinking. The service. There are quite a lot of shortages in the service sector at the moment but, because of Brexit. Uh, on the other hand, though, we do have, uh, we're granted something like a million additional uh, visas for entry to the UK. So a oh. consequence of Brexit wasn't that there was less immigration. There was a change in the pattern with more of it coming from outside the EU and less of it from within the EU. But and I those would... sorts of... <laughs> go on, go on, you have a I was going to say, I would agree that, the, that property is an issue, right? And our over-reliance on keeping prices and land high in this country, and especially concentrated in the southeast, I'd say coupled with an oversized financial sector and also, you know public assets being um, kind of financialized and too many areas of natural monopoly being in the private sector is the kind of fundamental issue around the UK economy not working for most people. So I think there are some kind of overlaps. I guess it's just how, you know, where do we go from here? We've got a state, a kind of the conservative government who usually are, for a small state, actually expanding the state. But the way that they're doing it is by a lot of money and public money going straight to corporates we saw through the pandemic, you know, PPE contracts being handed out by friends of government, you know, that's a form of corruption. But there has been a flow of money from the state into, um, you know, into these mon monopolistic um, sectors like energy, which is obviously the, the focus of cost of living at the moment. Um, and, and, you know, the system isn't working. So we do need to have some, <laughs> a change. And I think maybe we both agree on that. A change. There you go. I think we can all agree that something needs to change, doesn't it? Peter says, this country has to become self-sufficient, simple. John says, the green agenda, madness is a cult and nothing more. Dave says, a long-term solution should be to re-nationalise utilities, um, scrap VAT on electricity, scrap the licence fee uh, and increase tax thresholds. Dave says, socialism is not the answer, is never the answer. Uh, look at Venezuela if you're confused. Colin says, if it were down to me, I would reopen the coal mines. Oh, goodness me, at least one of my panellists would have something to say about that. Fran, uh, Andrew, thank you very much for your company. The time has flown by. Have yourself a fantastic uh, weekend and I'll see you on Monday. Thanks for listening to Jubes and Co, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time. <laughs>